Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 23. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 1 of Second Chronicles 23. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, Azariah the son of Jerohem, Ishmael the son of Johanan, Azariah the son of Obed, Maaseiah the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat the son of Zikri. And they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, Behold the king's son, let him reign, as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. This is the thing that you shall do of of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath. One-third shall be gatekeepers, and one-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord." Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. But all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever enters the house shall be put to death. Be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. The Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath, for Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss the divisions. And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains the spears and the large and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he set all the people as a guard for the king, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house. Then they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king, and Jehoiada and his sons anointed him, and they said, Long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the captives and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and the singers with their musical instruments leading in the celebration. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains who were set over the army, saying to them, Bring her out between the ranks, and anyone who follows her is to be put to death with the sword. For the priest said, Do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and they put her to death there. And Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. That all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars and his images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And Jehoiada hoisted watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites, whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing according to the order of David. He stationed the gatekeepers at the house of, gates of the house of the Lord, so that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. And he took the captives, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the upper gate to the king's house. 
and they set the king on the royal throne. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which not only is very interesting, but it connects with our lives, with things we experience now or may experience in the future. Uh, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your promises to young Joash. We ourselves rely on you being faithful, and we know that you will, how we are encouraged by this text. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first of the smash hit Star Wars movies tells of a middle-aged couple who were farming in the waste of a different distant planet named Tatooine. Now, some of you will say that's Star Wars 4. No, it's the first of the Star Wars movies. And they've been raising a teenage boy, Luke Skywalker, whose parents had been lost in mysterious circumstances. He was entrusted to them as a child of promise destined to overthrow the evil galactic empire. But Uncle Owen wanted nothing to do with empires, prophecies, or other powers. He feared the dangers that brought the demise of his brother, Luke's father. And yet, of course, Uncle Owen cannot keep a child of destiny down on the farm. Soon, Luke is forced to escape by an imperial attack that destroys his aunt and uncle. He sets out to fulfill the destiny given to him. Now, we can contrast the defeated attitude of Star Wars' Uncle Owen with the courageous faith of a man from ancient Jerusalem who was entrusted with a similar calling. Second Chronicles chapter 22 concluded with the evil queen Athaliah. Now you remember that she was the daughter of Jezebel. It's been a while since we were in Second Chronicles. This is the woman who's the daughter of Jezebel, who wonderful King Jehoshaphat had foolishly arranged to marry his son so that the house of Omri in the north, in their wickedness and idolatry, came to power in Judah. And once her husband, the king, had died, Athaliah, who so much is like the evil emperor of Star Wars, she put the sword to all the male heirs of the line of Israel's King David, and she took power herself. Did I say all of David's heirs? Well, all but one. For Jehoshabeath, her stepdaughter, had learned of her plans, and she secreted away the youngest royal heir, Joash, along with his nurse. With an intrepid spirit worthy of action movies, Jehoshabeath nestled away the baby, and the son of the house of King David was saved. And there, while Athaliah spread her evil, Jehoshabeath and her husband Jehoiada, who was high priest in Israel, they brought up the young heir. Now, in the Star Wars movie, there's a scene where young Skywalker is told, Luke, you are our only hope. We discover that he really was not. Those words were true. We can imagine godly but fearful young Jehoshabeath cradling that royal baby if god's promised salvation was ever to come true he must live he must reign as king well the story of joash's ascension to the throne is one that tells of a courageous man who stood up to evil and acted with clear vision what a couple were jehoshabeth we saw her valor in chapter 22 but then her husband jehoiada 
And ever since the bloody coup had elevated Athaliah, they had cared for and protected the heir of David's line. And now that Jehoiada, now that Joash was seven years old, presumably he was able to at least play the role of king, we read in verse 1 that Jehoiada took courage and he began devising a plan. This little-known hero of the Bible played a vital role in the destiny of the church. Matthew Henry observes that when God has a work to do, he will qualify and he will animate men and women to do it. So we have here, God had a work that needed to be done, and so God provided the courage of Jehoiada. And he was qualified by a strong, godly character. He had the needed courage and the boldness to pull off his plan. And he would show resourcefulness and prudence in the use of means. Moreover, he was ideally suited for the overthrow of an illegitimate government as high priest. He had connections throughout society. He even had a small military force at his command. But most of all, Jehoiada had faith in God's word, and that faith instilled him with confidence of God's help and blessing. He he imbibed the spirit of Solomon's wisdom in Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. There is a time of war as well as a time of peace. Well, judging that the time was right, whether because Josiah was now older, that was undoubtedly part of it, but also perhaps because resentment would have been growing against Athaliah's arrogant rule, Jehoiada begins orchestrating what obviously was a well-considered plan. Now, the first phase was to gather co-conspirators. We read in verse 1 that he entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Jeroham, Ishmael, the son of Johanahan, Jehoahan, Azariah, the son of Obed, Maaseah, the son of Adiah, Elishaphat, the son of Zikri, verse 1. Now, the term that they were commanders of hundreds suggests that they were military units. Today we would call them colonels, I think. How often colonels are involved in coup d'etats. According to the parallel text of 2 Kings 11.4, they were captains of the Karaites and of the guards. The Karaites were the, the mercenary soldiers who were the bodyguard of the king. And then we also had the local garrison. Now, the fact that Jehoiada entered into a covenant with them suggests that it was their shared faith that was inspiring them and drew them into this risky venture. That was phase one. Phase two of Jehoiada's plan involved the recruiting of leaders from the religious establishment. Verse two, the Levites from all the cities of Judah, but then also with them the elders of the people, the heads of fathers' houses of Israel. Now here is a clear-eyed strategist. He's thinking not only of the mechanics of a coup, of a takeover, but also of the legitimacy of what they were going to accomplish. Jehoiada was determined that Joash's restoration would be an act of all the people. He had the soldiers, he had the priests, he had the, the leaders of the families, that it was not just a piece of palace intrigue. What an excellent leader he was. Now, like most successful plans, Jehoiada's revolt against Athaliah was a simple plan. Good plans are simple plans, but also well calculated. Now, the problem, there was one problem he faced. 
And that was how to gather sufficient strength in Jerusalem to acclaim Joash publicly as king without rousing the alarm. And his solution was based on his command of the shifts of priests at the temple on the Sabbath day. Listen as he shares his strategy in verses 4 and 5. This is the thing that you shall do. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers, one-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation, and all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. Now, in short, Jehoiada was going to take advantage of the commotion and the double number of soldiers present at the changing of shifts of the Levites and the guardsmen at the temple, as well as with the palace. And this was designed both to mask his movements and to give him sufficient force. His idea was when the Levites and the guardsmen were released from their shifts, instead of going home, they would occupy strategic places in the city, the gates. They would occupy the palace. They would, the, 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 we're not told where the uh, gate of foundation is, but it's clearly a strategic point in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the incoming shift they would take their normal occupation of the temple and its grounds as well as the palace. Now we should remember, by the way, that many of the Levites had a guardian job. One one clan was in charge of guarding the Ark of the Covenant. Another was in charge of guarding the storerooms and whatnot. So the Levites, Levites were themselves a paramilitary force. Now this, again, this concentration of forces would be masked by the changing of shifts and by the crowds who would normally be gathered in the temple courts on the Sabbath day. Now, I think they could especially bank on Athaliah not noticing because she did not worship at the temple. She rather went to the Baal shrine that she had erected. And so once the outgoing shifts had occupied the temple courts and the grounds and the gateways, At that moment, Jehoiada was going to produce the young heir to the throne of David. Verse 7, the Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hands. Now, there was one potential hitch to the plan, and that was that they were able to have the proper orders given at the proper time. There was a solution for that potential hitch, namely that it was Jehoiada himself who had the authority to give those orders. It was a simple and well-crafted plan. Well, the day of decision arrived. I think the fact that none of the conspirators leaked the information suggests their spiritual motivation. And the change of shifts occurred, all without problems. Verse 8, the Levites and all, the, all, and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada and the priests commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss the, the divisions. Jehoiada now had the extra men he needed. He even had the extra arms for them. Verse 9, he took the spears and the large and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. Now, these weapons undoubtedly were antiquated. Some of them may have been ceremonial. Remember how in Solomon's glory they took the gold and they turned them into shields, but then Shishak, the king of Egypt, took away the gold. They made brass ones. There were at least ceremonial weapons that they were using in the house of the Lord. But there's more than that. Andrew Stewart, I think, is right when he says they were using the weapons of David to restore the sons of sons of David, a son of David to the throne of David. Even the weaponry they bore uh, to their conspiracy was, a, was an expression of their faith. 
Now, when all was in place, Jehoiada brought forth the heir to David's throne. Verse 11 shows that the bodyguard was assembled, every man with his weapons in his hand, on both sides of the royal palace as well. And when the guards were in place, verse 11, they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony, and they proclaimed him king, and Jehoiada and his sons anointed him, and they said, long live the king. Well, the efficiency of this conspiracy of this change of regime was rewarded by the instant acclaim of the gathered crowd they saw that the true monarchy had been revealed of course all the ceremonies even the place where he stood he stood by the pillar where solomon had formerly stood undoubtedly he was dressed in the robes of the davidic house and so the king was standing by the pillar according to the custom and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoiced blowing trumpets A man of courage had acted with prudence and conviction, joined by stout, like-minded men, and the nation's hope was restored. Now, Jehoiada was neither the first nor the last man to pull off an efficient overthrow of a government. But the question has to be asked, was he justified in doing so? Now, I say that because Christians who suffer under tyranny will often wrestle with the question of whether or not a formal uprising is justified in the eyes of the Lord. And one answer, a general view, is set forth by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, verse 1, where the Bible requires believers to be subject to the governing authorities, whether evil or not, on the grounds that God is the one who raises up rulers and kings. In fact, it's often noted that when Paul wrote that, the most likely emperor in Rome was the emperor Nero, a a man who in many ways was illegitimate in his rule and who was savage and brutal, especially to God's people. Paul says that they are to be subject because he is legitimate authority. So here's the question. Was Jehoiada justified in usurping the power of Judah's usurping queen? Well, there's three considerations that show that Jehoiada was fully justified for his actions. In fact, this episode provides a biblical grid for others whose duty may be to follow in his steps. Now, first, we need to remember that Jehoiada was not acting in any of this as a private citizen who was stirring up rebellion. Instead, he was the occupant of a high and important office. He was the high priest. And that office gave him a guardianship over the well-being of the nation. John Calvin drew from this examples and others like it to advance the doctrine known as the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. This doctrine says that lower officials and princes, we might say state governors, mayors, city councils, so what, so state assemblies, lower magistrates have the duty that includes offering resistance, resistance to tyrants when they abuse the people and deprive their God-given liberties. Calvin wrote that while private Christians must submit even to ungodly rulers, there are popular magistrates. This is from the Institutes, Book 4. There are popular magistrates who have been appointed to curb the tyranny of kings. And he wrote that when kings and emperors tyrannize and insult the humble people, these lesser magistrates are intended by God to be their guardians and protectors. Now, he is going to draw that doctrine from the example of passages like this. In fact, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles would be key books 
in the Reformation and the post-Reformation uh, Protestantism reflecting on civil order. And it was on this justification that the, uh, Frederick the Elector of Saxony protected Martin Luther when the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V had ordered that Luther would be handed over. The lesser magistrate, the prince, stood up to the emperor because he was acting like a tyrant. Now, this biblical principle happens to also be enshrined in the United States Constitution. Uh, the Bible is not the only source of reflection that the founders of this, uh, this nation used, but it certainly is an important one. And from the Bible, we see in our Constitution the, govern, the, the use of the lesser magistrates who may oppose a tyrannical power. How we thank God for godly governors, for state assemblies. And my view is that in years to come, the state house is going to be increasingly important for the liberties of, of the people. Uh, we have this, the national legislature with its right of impeachment of a criminal president. Now, again, Calvin's principle of the lesser magistrate draws from Jehoiada's example. It also provides a protection against a general spirit of rebellion and anarchy that is so dangerous to a nation's well-being. Because not only does the doctrine of the lesser magistrate say that those office holders have the right and duty to protect the people, it also says that they are the ones who have the duty to do so and that private citizens may not foment rebellion. Now, among these lesser magistrates are pastors and elders in the church who are justified in refusing government power when it comes to violating God's word in the church. We think of how the apostles Peter and John refused to obey the Jewish Sanhedrin when they demanded that they stop preaching the gospel of Jesus. Peter said, it is, which is better for us to obey God or you? Now, on the one hand, private Christians, you, all of us, we will have times, maybe soon, when we have a duty of, of peaceful uh, civic disobedience. But John and Peter were acting as magistrates. They were apostles. They were the leaders of the church. It was their duty, it's even to, in the case of Jehoiada, a man like that had the authority even to organize a formal resistance to tyranny. So that's the first thing that justifies this conspiracy. He was a man whose duty called for him to do it. Now, secondly, Jehoiada's revolt was justified by its pursuit of aims that were guided by God's word. Look at verse 3. And notice that he does not rally the conspirators on the grounds that, you know, Athaliah is a foreigner, her policies are unproductive, or even that the conspirators might personally benefit from a regime change. No, no, he appeals to the promises of God concerning the line of David. What a stirring and solemn moment it was when Jehoiada first called these military leaders to his home and he began letting them know what he was thinking. And then he opened the doors and there was an heir to the house of David. I must have been overwhelmed to see that. I love the words of verse 3, and Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. Now he's referring to God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of this kingdom forever. As the chronicler Many centuries later, as we're studying Chronicles, we want to be in the moment. 
We also need to be remembering that this is being written at another time in history by the author who's also a spiritual leader and he's meeting the needs of his time and how moving it must have been for him to record the labors and the conspiracy of godly Jehoiada. It was because of the righteous valor of this godly man that the hope of God's redemptive plan had continued down to his own time. We too are indebted to countless heroes, women like Jehoshabeth and Esther, men like Jehoiada and Elijah and Nehemiah. Let's not forget the intrepid apostles of our Lord, who in God's providence were the servants of our gospel hope in a marvelous way by which the Lord was at work. Now, thirdly, Jehoiada demonstrated his godly intent by the care he took in observing the law of the Lord, even in the midst of this conspiracy. You know, sometimes they say, well, to, break a, to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs. That is not the thinking of Jehoiada. There was no point, as he saw it, of overthrowing an evil king, queen, unless they were going to establish a rule that was carefully subservient to the word of God. Look at verse 6. This is his insistence that the sanctity of the temple be preserved. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. I suppose it would have been expedient to smuggle more people in. You would have had more forces on the temple mount if that was possible. But but God's law forbade any but the Levites from entering those hallowed courts. J.A. Thompson is right when he says there was little point in overthrowing Athaliah if in so doing the people of God themselves ignored the law of Moses. Well, my friends, obedience to God's word should govern all of our actions in time of peace or of tumult. God's blessing should always be sought through a trusting obedience to his commands in the Bible. Now, Christians, you know, are always engaged in the holy cause of spiritual warfare. You may be thinking, it would be fascinating if I lived in such times. Oh, but you do. You do. And we face a warfare that we know, the New Testament tells us, ultimately is spiritual warfare with powers and principalities. The head of the enemy force is not an Athaliah. Oh, that may be the face, but behind her is Satan. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10 that we wage war not according to the flesh, And so the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We wage war, Ephesians 6 says, by putting on the whole armor of God, godly character, faith, in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. We oppose spiritual tyranny by, as Paul puts it, taking up the helmet of salvation and wielding our mighty weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Ephesians six seventeen and 18. Do you realize how important in the cosmic warfare are your prayers? The prayers of our churches, the prayers that you have in your homes that we offer up to God and our wielding of God's word before the world. Well, Jehoiada's plan had advanced perfectly, but there was one factor not accounted for, and that is Athaliah herself. How thorough and wicked had been her preparations six years earlier when she usurped the throne and so uh, cleverly arranged the slaughter of the children of the house of David. But now the tables had turned and the day of the Lord's reckoning had come for her. 
Now, so far as we know, on this day, the wicked queen was enjoying a typical Saturday by flouting her rebellion to God through idolatry at her local Baalite church. But then a strange sound came from the temple. Verse 12, Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, so she went into the house of the Lord to the people. Oh, investigating the tumult, she could hardly believe what she saw. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar at the entrance and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets and the singers with their musical instruments leading the celebration. Verse 13. Now, Athaliah was formerly the wife of the Davidic king, so she recognized those royal garments. She knew very well the meaning of these celebrations. No doubt, I think certainly, she made a quick su- survey of the situation. And she quickly realized that for her, the jig was up. Her opponents held the ground with superior forces, leaving her no chance of resistance or even escape. And so throwing a tantrum that probably reflects her style of leadership, Verse 13 says, Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. Now here is a biblical scene of Shakespearean quality. You know, it actually works the other way. Shakespeare got most of that stuff from the Bible. It's the Bible that's Shakespearean, but you know what I mean. Because it's filled with the irony of a traitor who shrieks against treason. A usurper who points the finger of accusation against usurping a murderer who rails in frustration at the prospect of losing her own life, and yet lose it she would. Spying the evil queen in the temple courts, Jehoiada quickly summoned his captains, verse 14, bring her out between the ranks, and anyone who follows her is to be put to death with a sword. It's noteworthy that neither the account of kings nor chronicles mentions anyone rallying to Athaliah's side. That is no surprise. Yet even now, Jehoiada would see that the scriptures were not violated. Verse 14 and 15, the priest said, Do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and there they put her to death. Philip Ryken comments, Even in this act of vengeance, Jehoiada proved to be a righteous man. As a holy priest, he was careful not to dishonor God by shedding any blood on holy ground. At the same time, Athaliah's demise recalls the fitting end delivered by the Lord to her mother. Remember her mother, Jezebel? How she was thrown from a tower so that her blood was spattered against the walls, her body was trampled, and her her bones were chewed upon by the dogs. It's a fitting end to the usurping reigns of both the evil mother and her evil daughter. Well, as we reflect on this stirring story of how a true king was restored to the throne of God's people in Jerusalem, we first should remember that evil will ever come crashing down in a world that is ruled by a righteous, holy, wise, and almighty sovereign. How firm did Athaliah's grip over Jerusalem seem on Friday? Before Saturday was over, her body was being trampled by the palace horses. In this truth, Christians, at all times, we may look with hope for an end to evil. We can find our own courage to take a stand as God would call us to do 
David in Psalm 7 assured us that we may trust the Lord to bring deliverance against evil. Here's what he said. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. But his mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Thus is the word of the Lord, Psalm seven twelve to 16. Now secondly, we should turn our thoughts to the one figure we have not yet much considered, and that's young King Joash. Like Luke Skywalker in the fictional Star Wars saga, he'd passed his young years in the obscure protection of, a, of an aunt and an uncle. And given his circumstances, what future, what hope could he really have? Well, the answer is found in his status. Because all through this account, he's known as one thing. It's found in verse 2, behold the king's son. Here's the one fact that does produce a hope. He is a child of the king. That's what was told when he was brought forth. And as an heir of the house of King David, God's promises rested on young Joash. And in time, God's blessing was certain to arrive. Well, my friend, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your status, according to the Bible, is analogous to that of royal Joash. John 1, verse 12, a well-known verse says that if you receive Jesus in faith, believing on his name, God has given you the right to become the children of God. And that means that God's promises rest on you as well in Christ. God's promises guarantee the protection of your eternal soul, of your ultimate receipt of God's presence. Yes, even your coronation as a royal heir with Christ of God's eternal kingdom. Romans 8, verse 17. The chronicler notes that when Joash was brought forth and he was crowned, look at verse 11, they gave him the copy, they gave him the testimony. What's the testimony? Almost certainly that is Joash's personal copy of God's law. You may know Deuteronomy 17 gave instructions for a king and oh, how... How well-planned was Jehoiada? How he'd been thinking about this. He'd been reading his own scriptures. He had done what the Lord wanted to do because it seems almost certain that as the kings were to do, Jehoiada had had young Joash working on his own personal handwritten copy of the word of God. And that now is presented to the young king. Well, God has done likewise in providing to all of his children the Bible. We have no more precious trust. We have no more sacred resource than the written word of God. And we are not only to hold it in our hands, we are to cause it to be written in our hearts if we are to reign in the cause of Jesus. I gave Joash his testimony, but that's not all. Verse 11, then Jehoiada and his sons anointed him. Now, you know, the anointing with oil was the symbolism of the inward of of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those invested with office, the heirs of God's house. Perhaps you feel vulnerable. Maybe you feel unprepared to serve Jesus. Think how young King Joash, a seven-year-old new king, must have felt. But he had the testimony of God's word in his hand, and he had the anointing of God's spirit indwelling in his heart. He was fully equipped. 
to reign on behalf of the Lord. Andrew Stewart comments, the king was young and weak, but his strength was to come from the Lord who is almighty. That same strength is given to you. The sealing of the Holy Spirit, the the word of God as his testimony to you, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. You may serve the house of the king. Well, one third reflection should observe what Jehoiada, Jehoiada did to assist the young king and making a proper start to his reign. It's the rest of the chapter. First, verse 16, Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. Now, when the Lord gives us a fresh start, the purpose of that fresh start is that we should live in God's grace under the rule and according to the word of his law. We are to live according to God's word. Oh, every transition in life, particularly in the church, every opportunity to do things again, we should say, let us live, let's covenant that we will live under God's grace according to God's word. And to that end, Jehoiada restored the rule of the scripture. He renewed the people in their covenant fidelity to the Lord. Now, secondly, all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and images, they broke in pieces. They killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before his altars. Well, the destruction of this idolatrous temple, undoubtedly brought into Jerusalem by Athaliah, and the slaying of its priest reflected a godly resolution to rid the land of unbelief and and evil so far as legitimately possible. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way, you can't have a solid covenant victory unless all that sabotages the covenant is eliminated. Those are words of wisdom. Let me say this, if God should ever give you charge of a nation, I admit that's not very likely. If God should give you the charge of a church, many of us here will serve as elders and, and have that kind of ministry. How about this? If God should ever give you the charge of a family, Your royal duty calls for false teaching to be exposed and removed, for sinful practices to be abandoned, and false worship to be repudiated. Verses 18 to 20 tell of the arrangements Jehoiada made to settle the new king's house in peace. In verse 18, he provides for the protection of the temple under the Levitical priests. He restores the sacrifices which undoubtedly Athaliah had impeded. Then the sanctity, verse 9, of the temple was protected by proper guards according to God's word. He's doing everything the Bible says. Then they had a great coronation parade in which the military leaders, the civil rulers, and all the people of the land, verse 20, they brought the royal king down from the temple. They seated him on his royal throne. Thus was God's blessing restored to his city all by the courageous prudence and biblical fidelity of Jehoiada. Verse 21, so all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword. Well, the coronation of young King Joash has so much to tell us about our own status, our calling as God's royal children. But it has even more to tell us about Jesus, whose coming coming is so thoroughly anticipated by the events of this chapter. Think of how Jesus, like baby Joash, was protected by the murderous schemes of a tyrant. King Herod had sent his soldiers to slay the children of Bethlehem, but an angel of the Lord came to his parents. They got him away. They kept him safe. And then when he had been kept safe and had grown up, the time came 
for God's Son to be revealed. What a thing it was. It was a private at first. John the Baptist met with him at the Jordan River and baptized him. And Jesus was anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It descended upon him as a dove in Matthew 3. Then the day came for his public revealing. At the gates of Jerusalem itself, all the people crying aloud, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke 19.38 Ah, but when, you may ask, was Jesus enthroned? Didn't the people reject him? Didn't they send him away to die on the cross? Yes, they did. But the answer is that Jesus was enthroned through his resurrection and by his ascension into heaven where God enthroned his son forever on the throne of heaven itself. And from there, this Jesus reigns even now. Ephesians 1, 20 to 22 says that God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. Our king has been enthroned. Moreover, the day will come when Jesus, like young King Joash, will see vengeance on all his enemies who sought to usurp his kingdom and who oppressed his people. Now, in this case, it's Jesus himself who will avenge himself against the followers of Athaliah in every age who plant the seeds of idolatry, who afflict the people of God. Second Thessalonians 1, 7-8 says, The Lord will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I think one way that the enthronement of Joash prefigures the second coming of Christ is when Athaliah shows up and suddenly the king is revealed. That's a picture of what's going to happen for all history. On Friday, it seems like the reign of evil is firmly ensconced. On the next day, whatever day of the week it's going to be, I do not know. Suddenly he will be revealed. The apocalypse, the appearing of the Son of Man in glory on clouds of glory. Well, finally, when we look on the coronation parade of this newly restored King Joash, our eyes, I hope it's already happened, your eyes have been lifted forward to that coming age when all the saints will acclaim him. When we will gather it in the new heavens and the new earth and we will proclaim and acclaim King Jesus in his glory. Verse 12, Then the people cried out to royal Joash, Long live the king. What better news we have even than that when it comes to the eternal reign of Jesus our Savior and King. Philippians 2, 9-11 says of our royal Jesus, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And with those tongues we will acclaim a kingdom that truly will have no end as the angel announced The Lord God will give to him, Jesus, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Father in heaven, 
We are filled as we read the Old Testament with a way that you infiltrate Jesus into the, into the Word. And Lord, we thank you for the example and all that godly Jehoiada did for us. Help us to be courageous and wise and faithful and godly the way that he was. But Father, it's not him that we see. We see him who sits on the throne. And what Jehoiada did for Judah, you have done for us in Jesus. You have exalted and enthroned your son. And there he sits with the marks on his hands and feet and on his side of the atoning wounds he suffered for us. What a savior we have. What a future we will have together with the Lord forever. May we live with praise to him now. May we serve him with faith and courage. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.